This is Comfort to You, My People, Lesson 7, and we are live. Joshua? Check it out. Um, yeah, this is the final lesson in uh, Comfort You, My People. I'm, I hope you've enjoyed it. We've had, I had a lot of fun doing it. It's been a great class for me. Um, so this week, we are taking a look uh, at the last Pop-Tar of Consolation. Um, for those of you who, are, who have lost your Hebrew calendar and forgot Chabad.org's address, um, the uh, Rosh Hashanah is coming up next Monday. So this is Shabbat is the very last one where we read these Haftarot of Consolation. We're getting ready to enter the stage in which we welcome the king. Rosh Hashanah is all about kingship. Mm -hmm. So it's a very good, uh, appropriate thing to be entering into uh, after these Haftarot because especially towards the end, the Haftarot are very much about relationship between God and his people. So um, I'd like us to go ahead and read it. I think it's a good thing to do. So we're in Isaiah 61, verse 10. All the way through Isaiah 63, verse 9. So it's about two chapters. Someone get that. 61, verse 10, so we're starting. I have it. Oh, go ahead. You waited to do 63 where? Verse 9. Okay. I will greatly rejoice in Adonai. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. <clears throat> he hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments. Oh wait, just a second. This is King James version. Okay. I grew up with King James. I know, but I can't read it. Though. <laughs> I decketh my clothes this morning. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. I know. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, <laughs> and as a garden causes what it's sown, it to sprout up. So Adonai Elohinu will cause righteousness and praise to spread up before all the nations. For Zion's sake I will not keep silent, and for Yerushalayim's sake I will not be quiet, until her righteousness goes forth as brightness, and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness, and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of Adonai will give. It shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of Adonai, and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be turned desolate. But you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married. For Adonai delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. On your walls, O Yerushalayim, I have set watchmen, all the day and all the night. They shall never be silent. You who put Adonai in remembrance, take no rest, and give him no rest, until he establishes Yerushalayim, and makes it a praise in the earth. Adonai has sworn by his right hand, and by his mighty arm, I will not again give your grain to be food for your enemies, and foreigners shall not drink your wine, for which you have labored. But those who garner it shall eat it, and praise Adonai, and those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. Go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones, lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, Adonai has proclaimed the end of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of Adonai. And he shall be called, sought out, a city not forsaken. Who is this who comes from Edom, in crimson garments from Bozrah? He who is splendid in his apparel marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red, and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? 
I had trodden the winepress all alone, and for the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger, and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments, and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. I will recount the steadfast love of Adonai, the praises of Adonai, according to all that Adonai has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, Surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior. In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Amen. So yes, I'm asking God to open our eyes, receive wondrous things in his Torah. This, this passage is pretty amazing. It's uh, chapters um, 61 through 62. You get these marriage references and these uh, references of, of God um, talking about rejoicing over his people like a bridegroom over a bride and talking about making Jerusalem a praise in the earth and um, and there's this contrast, this striking contrast to chapter 63, uh, where it opens up immediately with him saying, basically, who's coming up from the land of the enemy with blood all over his clothes? I mean, it's kind of like a, it's a, um, this is, this is a, uh, patriot coming yeah, this is, this is, this is like a, a, yeah, Mel Gibson, Sylvester Stallone kind of image here. Um, and it's pretty, it's pretty shocking, and it's contrasts so strongly with what we'd seen in the previous chapters, um, to the point where it almost would feel, um, it would almost feel uh, uh, in opposition. Like, well, how can this? Almost like we can't be talking about the same person, right? I mean, you know, God, this this loving, kind, you know, bridegroom-like God can't possibly be this vengeful, violent God, but actually, he is. And one of the things that is. Um, that Judaism emphasizes very strongly in the idea of, of the Shema, the, uh, Hashem Echad, God is one, is the idea that, that God is one in all respects. Like, it's not just that there's only one God, but that God himself is united, that he is, that he is a perfect expression of all of the different facets of his character all the time, basically. So he's, he's not, um, it's not as though, you know, there's a nice God and there's a mean God. Or it's not as though there's a there's a there's a God who who uh, wants to love and forgive us. There's a God who's wrathful and vengeful. It's always the same. He's always the same, and uh, and he expresses it in different ways in different times. Um, but ultimately, he is the same one doing both. And I think it's very important, especially when you're dealing with uh, with some of our, our brothers and sisters who have a misconception about the Torah and see God as being different somehow prior to Yeshua. It's like, no, this is the same one. As we read later on, we're going to, as we continue the study, we'll find that, that this violent-sounding God from Isaiah makes a very strong reappearance at the end of the book. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I'm reminded of uh, movies when, when your dad and, and, and Scott and I were younger. You know, things like uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, right? So you've got what would appear to be a gentle, kind man who, when pushed over the line is willing to be violent or to uh, 
do vengeance. You know, probably the, the younger guys here are more of the Clint Eastwood uh, scenario with, you know, Dirty Harry and stuff like that who didn't really How young are we speak going? very <laughs> quietly and gently, but the, the concept... Get off my lawn! Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> the, the that's the movie. Yeah, the, the concept that, that there can be a, a kind man who has wrath uh, behind him when needed, when justified, is, right. is not a new concept. Right. Um, it's, it's when the when the violence or the wrath or the vengeance is unjustified that I think today's culture is, is more uh, into, which is just totally inappropriate. Right, yes, there's definitely a tendency towards excess, but I think it's also a struggle in our culture because our culture, um, ironically enough, I think taps in a little bit into the, the Redeemer. Because when we talk about blood Redeemer, kinsman Redeemer from, from the Torah, that person was a family member. That person was someone who redeemed you when you were in debt, right? That person is someone who's supposed to be particularly generous and supportive. That person also was the blood avenger. The person who kills you. I mean, right. they, they hunt them down and kill them. That's right. And that and that and wait outside <laughs> the city of refuge. Yeah. Right. I mean, they they're. I mean, that was in, in fact, and it wasn't just simply a, an act of vengeance. Sometimes it's portrayed that way, but it was an act of justice. In fact, God makes it very clear that if the person escapes to a city of refuge, but then is tried and found guilty of, of murder, then the kinsman redeemer is the one who then kills him. And he's supposed to to execute him as part of justice. Yeah. So the. Um, Revenge in Italian is vendetta. Right. Yeah, I get it. So there's, there's, there is, there is something I think that our culture struggles with in our judicial system that seems off yeah. a little bit, and recognizes that family or or close ties justify. Uh, well, that person at some level has some right to justice, and I think that God expresses that as we're talking about this bridegroom character. Of course, because who is he exacting his vengeance on? It's the nations. It's the enemies of Israel. The enemies of his bride. His bride. So they, they're these the ones in the Edom. Is when he gets mentioned here. <clears throat> Edom is uh, enemy number one. And the reason they're enemy number one, or one of the, one of the reasons, not the only reason, one of the reasons, is because when... Destroy, destroy. Well, when, it, when Israel was taken... By, yeah, my dad's right. When Israel was taken into Babylonian captivity, the Edomites were cheery. And the Edomites were... You know, brutalizing the, the refugees and the escapees or the victims or the, the, the prisoners or captives, whatever. They were, they were, in Israel's worst time of need, they were taking perverse advantage of them and enjoying every minute of it. And so God's, God's wrath being poured out here is completely justified. There's no, um, this isn't excess. And I think that. <coughs> And that, and I think when you feel like, realize what that is, it's God's relationship to His people in both directions. That helps kind of harmonize it in our own minds, at least, yeah. although that needs to be. Yes, sir. Well, just going back to what was mentioned, um, I sometimes wonder if you can make an idol out of the God concept. And for example, if we say God is only love, God is only peace, God is only hope, you see this dispensational ideology that you have this vengeful wrathful God who's sitting on his throne ready to strike down anyone who disobeys the law, but then this new dispensation, you have this benevolent loving grandfather mm -hmm. who just wants the best and kindly nods and winks at every transgression you make. And if you use any of those saying he's only one or the other and not take the totality of it, 
you make an idol out of the image that you consider to be God. And people have really God. It's not really God, but people have waged war over that very same concept. You know, God wills it. That's true. Versus or um, the very opposite. You think God is that way. He's really merciful, so I'm going to kill you. (laughs) I mean, the programs and you know. And then, um, uh, everything else that they do, and even the conflicts done. between uh, the the Mennonites and Calvinists, you know that that whole um, Calvinism and Arminius, Arminius, yeah, Arminius, work based um, theology versus salvation. You know, with the uh, Martin Luther, lot of concept over what we uh, think like God is. Right. So. Absolutely, and I, it's, it's a dangerous thing to do, and I think it's, um, and that's why I feel like when you, and that's one reason why I feel like it's so helpful to read these passages, I think I appreciate the fact that the, the sages of Israel who put this particular portion together chose to put those two together. Because I think they do go together. Yes, sir. On the topic of <clears throat> getting the entire perspective of God in the Sidur, there is I can't remember where, but it tells about God being of all the allegor- allegories. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we do that in most of prayers, right? We do. It actually was in this week's lesson. It's a great point, Josiah. I was actually going to go there. It's from the Song of Glory, yeah. Um, and they, uh, they, they say that he's a unity containing all of them. So they talk about him. Uh, this was quoting from a few portions of the Ascrol Sador. They envisioned in you agedness and virility, and the hair of your head is hoary and jet black, aged on Judgment Day and virile in the day of battle like a man of war whose powers are many. He's near to me when I call to him. He is white and crimson. His garment will be bloody red when he tramples us in the press and is coming from me dome. So this, this, uh, see that's the thing, mistake that ancient civilizations made and the mistake even that some more modern religions make, this, you know, the yin-yang where somehow it's kind of like the universe is harmonized but there's two separate forces. Judaism says no, there's only one. God is one. Everything ultimately finds its existence in God. And now, does it get expressed in ways that sometimes it's hard for us to understand? Is, is there some capacity for humans to make, to choose to do wrong? Yes, we don't understand that. I don't think we need to. But the point is that when it comes to, um, to divine intervention, so to speak, there's, no, there's, not, there's not two forces here. God's not playing chess with Satan. God's playing chess against himself, and he already knows he won. <laughs> so there's not like, uh, I think that sometimes people create this sort of superhero conflict where somehow God is having to fight against the enemy. That's not really true. Uh, Judaism's principle is that the enemy ultimately, at the end of, at the, end of the day, so when we get to the very, very end, uh, I think it was Yishai Fleischer was, had this comment, this is an interesting one. It's like the, the curtains pull back and you know, all the crowd comes out, all the crowd's applauding and the, uh, this, the actors come on the stage. And look, there are all the demons and all the other bad characters, and they're all bowing down too, because it's like, yeah, you know, we played our part, we did what we were supposed to do, whatever, you know, it's like this was, um, and here we are. But God is always in charge, and he is united, and I think it's important to realize that unity. And it's not limited, and that's why I said earlier, it's not limited to, um, to the Tanakh. So let's go to, uh, to Yeshua's parables. Um, and I had you guys read a few different passages. Um, I want to kind of hit on some other ones, uh, or rather extensions of some of those passages. So... Um, so we're going to read through some of the parables, but then I'm going to go a little bit beyond the parable because I think it's interesting to see what else is in there. Uh, so first off, uh, we're on Luke chapter 12, 35 through 40. We got it. Go ahead. 
Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table. He will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Absolutely. And so you think about that being ready. Um, it's interesting that he, he talks to this idea of being, waiting for the Master, again, like the wedding. He uses the wedding imagery again, which is the same imagery we got earlier in Isaiah. Um, but there is that sense of judgment, or in this case, reward. Remember, at the end of Isaiah, or in the middle of the passage, it says his reward is with him. At the same time, it's also judgment, too. And Peter um, Peter asks him, who are we talking about here? And, and it's interesting, Yeshua then tells another parable right after this one that ties into the same concept. And starting in verse 42, I'm going to read uh, 42 through 48. The Lord answered, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of the servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? It will be good for the servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. Truly I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose the servant says to himself, My master has taken a long time in coming, and he then begins to beat the other servants, both the men and the women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place for the unbelievers. Mm -hmm. So if you think about that passage, um, I think it's so interesting, again, that same, that, du that dual um, approach of, of God. So on the one hand, the master comes and finds the servant doing what he's supposed to do, there's reward. Um, on the other hand, if he comes to him and finds him not doing what he's supposed to do, there's severe punishment. And that is something that, um, that theme gets repeated elsewhere. So um, another, another one of Yeshua's wedding parables, so to speak, um, talking about the end of time, is in Matthew 25. Let's go to Matthew 25. I was at a wedding this weekend, and the bride set up the happenings of the wedding based on this passage. And she had her bridesmaids coming out holding little things of the oil, showing that they trimmed those lamps, got that oil, and they were ready to go. I haven't, was, I haven't seen that Yeah, before. it was pretty cool. It's pretty cool. She's, new she's focused completely on the text. It's great. That's cool. Um, so yes, Matthew 25, verse 1, uh, going through 13. Go ahead. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. When the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. 
Then all the virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterwards the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So in this passage, um, again, you get the contrast. Some are ready, they go in, some are not. But what does ready mean? I think it's, you know, in the last passage we read, um, there was that imagery again, and uh, there was a, there's a servant. So right after that wedding parable that Yeshua told Luke, he tells this parable about a, ser- a master goes away and his servant is left behind. Right after this wedding parable, he tells this, the parable of the, uh, the master and the talents, right? So he gives five talents to one, two to one, one to the last one. And the servant with five and two, they each go out and they make more, and the master comes home and is very happy with them. The servant who makes who has one, he buries it in the ground, specifically because he believes that his master is basically a cruel master, won't really reward him anyway, and therefore it's not worth taking the risk of the what he was given. Um, master, of course, is very unhappy with this, um, and he's punished. What's interesting about this passage, again, is uh, so we get this ma- wedding master, wedding master, these kind of sets of parables. But the question is, what exactly are they? What are we supposed to be doing? Um, and all these things, I think if you, you, know, you mentioned the, this parable showing up in the wedding, which is beautiful. But like, what does it mean? Trim your lamps. Oh, there we are. The lamps. There are the four of five different bridesmaids walking into the ceremony in the middle of the woods, carrying their lamps. Did they, ha- did they happen to have a recording of people shouting to the outside, let us in? No, no. That wasn't there. <laughs> no. Grinding their teeth. Yeah. I, I'm going to suggest that, but I, I don't think they're going to take that. Probably not. <laughs> yeah. That's not the happy part of the story. That's right. Um, but in that particular, but, uh, so again, so the question is, what does that mean? What does the lamp mean? What's the talent mean? And I think it's interesting that in the previous set of parables, Yeshua says, one of the, what did he mention? He mentions that they were beating the other servants and then also getting drunk and gluttonous. Well, in this portion, after he tells the story about the, uh, the parable, about the, um, the talents, he then goes into a more detailed par- uh, description of how the judgment day is going to go. So we're still in Matthew um, chapter 25. So I want you guys to look down here and read up. Uh, let's see, where are we starting from? We're going to start from verse 31. So 20, Matthew 25, verse 31, all the way through... 46. The end of the chapter? Yep. I got it. I think he's got it. You got it? Right. Yeah, I got it. Go for it, Greg. He's in 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as, she, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared 
for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Um, it's a heavy passage, and it's interesting that uh, the detail here, what's the, what's the specific, what's the thing that, that seems to show up in this passage as, as the mark? Action towards his brothers. Taking care of other people, right? It's, it's that love your neighbor as yourself, the second greatest commandment. Um, it's interesting that when, when Yeshua says the first greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, and might, he then says the second is like it. Which is interesting. Yes, they're both love commandments, but it almost feels like in saying that, it's almost like he's saying like they're connected. If you don't do the one, you really can't do the other. And in this case, um, I think you get that, that imagery here. So we have, we have this judgment and, and marriage dichotomy, so to speak, this balance. Um, and the judgment seems specifically to fall upon people who are mistreating other people. That seems to be a key mark. Yes, sir. Well, and I was just going to point out, because that verse about the neighbor, you know, Yeshua addresses the question about who is my neighbor and all that. But uh, honestly, I mean, this is just, this takes it such a, a step above what you would normally think. I mean, how often do we associate with anyone in this category? Someone who's hungry or thirsty, you know, sick, in prison. Like, we, we like, never, re I mean, we have to go out of our way, nowadays at least, to really uh, follow Yeshua's advice here. And, uh, but, but at the same time, I think that's kind of the point. You know, the point is hearkening back to what the Torah describes as our responsibility, is caring for the poor, caring for, because those sometimes could be seen as separate from the love your neighbor, but I think Shua does an amazing job of going, oh, no, 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 that's the same, you know, right. you taking care of the poor, you helping your enemy with his ox out of the ditch, or any, any of these scenarios, that's, that is what's the full extent of loving your neighbor. Yes, it's, 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 it's being generous and kind and helpful not necessarily standing on the street corner with the sign saying free hugs. Right. I actually, I actually saw that uptown. Free hugs. They were free. You know. That's, that's good. No. Are you sure it wasn't huggies? No, it was hugs. He was definitely offering hugs. Um, but this, uh, this concept of... Uh, but, that, but I think that's your point, though. That's not... That's, you know, loving your neighbor is action-based. It's doing things to care for your neighbor. And um, in, this, uh, in this passage we read earlier in the Haftarah, there's a comment uh, we read through, pass, it says, pass, pass through the portal, clear the way of the people, pave, pave the highway, cleared of stones, let's a banner over the peoples. And the clearest 
Stone's reference there, according to Rashi, uh, is, is, is dual. So there's one version of understanding it is, um, is alluding to the evil inclination. Get, get rid of the evil things that are hindering my people, right? Get, like, clean, clean it out. May they be righteous and good and ready for their, their master. But then it also can be interpreted, according to Rashi, as referring to preparing the road for the ingathering of the exiles. And yet, don't you kind of see how those go together? You know, there, it's like this idea of like hastening coming, this repentance of the people of Israel bringing um, this relationship closer. It's, it's not, a, I mean, think about, think about uh, if, it, if it is truly compared to a marriage, a wedding, then it would only make sense that the, you know, the bride's got to make herself ready, right? The bride's got to be prepared. So um, we also want to go into, let's see, Matthew 22, 1 through 14. Go ahead. And again, Yeshua spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven it may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was, ans was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those, mur those murders and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads, and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was full of guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot, and cast him into outer darkness. In that place where there in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. So again, that balance, right? The wedding feast, you know, the wedding feast is also aligned with judgment. Prior to the wedding feast, the king goes out and you know, <coughs> destroys his enemies. And then at, during the wedding feast, those who are not worthy are thrown out. Um, what's interesting about this, two things I find in this passage. One, lest, uh, to paraphrase Paul, you boast against the branches and be mm -hmm. like, well, who was invited and who was really able to come, you know, somehow like the... Well, the Jews were invited, and they said no, and then the Christians, they came in. I think it's fascinating that one of the uh, people that was that came in at the end is one of the ones who's tossed right out. So um, to Paul's reference, it's like, be very careful. It's like, don't boast against the branches. You think that, you know, they were easily cut off. Well, they can be crafted right back in. And it's like, and as for you, um, who's to say that you won't get cut off? Exactly. You're not and, wearing seats, you're out of here. You know, <laughs> and more importantly, and this is the, the ultimate reference, that... Um, Yeshua, in telling this parable, has nothing to do with Jews or Christians, God forbid, of course not, that's anachronistic, but, um, but furthermore, I mean, he's, the point of the parable, the point, is the end, the point is many are called, but few are chosen, his point is that some people, they hear the invitation initially, right, they, they prepare, they think about it, they know it, they grew up with it, whatever, it was obvious that they went to church all their lives, but they weren't ready, and they didn't really want it. Then there are others who hear about it late, right? So they get this idea, and that sounds really good to me. I would love that idea. You know, the Baal Teshuvah, or the, you know, the, the Christian convert on the, you know, gave up drugs, and now he's followed Jesus. Some of those, though, it's not real. 
right? They, they show up because they want to party. They want to be loved. They want forgiveness. They'd like to get out of hell free card. And free food, open bar. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, it's like the, the, the church gives me free coffee and donuts just because I'm a visitor. I get to park in the place right in front of the congregation. Anyway, the point is that they, um, that these, some of these people are not ready either. And that, and so the point of the parable, <laughs> it's not really to focus on people who are not ready. The point is to say, be ready, because those are the ones who get invited, those are the ones who say. I the thing, the second thing that I thought was fascinating to me is the man does not have on a wedding garment. There's a, I think there's a, there's a, there's a tendency, at least I, maybe it was in my own head, maybe other people don't do this, to want to reach ahead into Revelation and pull out of that and say, well, he wasn't, he wasn't given a wedding garment. So it's obvious that he didn't, you know, he hadn't, he hadn't prayed the, self, the sinner's prayer. If he had, he'd be given that righteous garment and therefore he would be there. He probably tried to work his way into the wedding. That's actually not what it's talking about. And in fact, if you look at the, um, the passage, it seems like it's entirely on him. He didn't show up with a wedding garment. So it's like, I think that when you read, and we're going to look at Revelation in a second, when you look at that, there is that balance. You know, God, God is ultimately righteousness comes from God. But at the same time, his people act righteously. And if they don't act righteously, they're not really his people. Well, the garments we'll read in Revelation are the righteous deeds of the saints. Mm -hmm. They have to do the works of righteousness as a result of having been given a place in the world to come, given the righteousness of the master. So, Absolutely. you know, it's uh, it's interesting. The other thing I saw in this, uh, you know, you're contrasting, um, was just that the parallel passage to this, just not enough people show up. Mm -hmm. Right? Everybody's got an excuse to not come. So he goes out to the, the highways and the byways, and it's almost like it's just not enough folk. And this one makes it clear. There's not enough folk because some of the folk that were invited weren't worthy to be there. Mm -hmm. And you know, I think it's a good touch to see them both. Also, I think that the, the human nature is if something is, is free, if it costs nothing, if it's like, oh, well, I'm an afterthought, I guess I'll show up, um, that it actually is cheap. Is, is cheap and treated in a cheap way. And that's that's kind of the impression I get when the guy that didn't show up dressed. Like, well, hey, I did you a favor showing up here. You needed to fill the seat. Yeah, Hello. right. So, I mean, I, you know, you expect me to dress too. I mean, that's almost the, yeah, right. the concept that you have in a man that doesn't come prepared for the wedding. You know, it wasn't because he didn't have time to get dressed or whatever else. It's like, well, this is just, it's not that big a deal and it's free food. Right, I think it's a great point. I remember oh, when I worked retail, uh, People were the grouchiest, the nastiest customers on sale. on sale days. It's like the pencils are practically free, and they're just plastic because oh my goodness, you! I think you ran out of pencils. I don't. Have, there's no pencils. It's like well, I, it's okay now. It's noon. You could have been here at eight, but you know you didn't. So I'm sorry. I mean, we have no more pencils. You know, and they're furious. And it's like Walmart. I mean, uh, you know, it's like we're talking about you. You could have saved 18 cents on this. You know, item. What are we talking about here? The point is that, um, that, to my dad's point, I think you're right, uh, Rabbi Lappin has a really neat comment about sacrifice. And he says the sacrifice is not about the person you're sacrificing to, it's about you. When you make sacrifice, you make that relationship more valuable. You actually grow closer to the person for whom you're making the sacrifice. This is one reason why um, you know, it's, it's a good idea uh, 
to I mean, think about like loving your enemy, right? Or uh, or even or even you know if you have a rift with someone you're close to, uh, be it a fight between husband and wife or whatever, one way to start to resolve that is to actually do something on their behalf. It seems counterproductive. It's like or counterintuitive. Like wait a minute, they they owe me some, but actually it's the other way around. If you will act and give something to them, you will find yourself drawn to them. Which is a kind of a, which is the principle I think we've got working here. The man comes in for free, and he takes it for granted. Yeah. But you don't even have to give them something. You just need to invest something. Hmm. Even if you just invest time, you right. invest yeah. some kind of right. treasure in them, it all goes. Well, I think if you look at parent-child relationships, an excellent example. I mean, the, uh, especially at the early stages, the child could, literally can do nothing to the parent. Yeah. Um, the parents not receiving any payback for this. And at some level, there may be in the back of the parents' mind this idea that maybe someday the child will take care of them or, or give them grandchildren or some sort nah. of benefit. But the reality is, yeah, it really works. Is that what we're talking about? The parent continues to sacrifice and grows in love mm -hmm. towards the child, mm -hmm. um, which is really pretty amazing. Gregory, did you have a comment? Mm -hmm. Okay, make sure I got it ready. All right. Um, so going to that passage that we, we keep referring to because it's a great passage. It's Revelation chapter 19. And Revelation chapter 19, uh, much like the parables we read and very much like the Hoptar we read, um, we're going to see this marriage judgment um, uh, string of events. And, um, and I, I like the fact that it's in Revelation at the very end of the book, because like I was saying earlier, it just really emphasizes this is who God really is. You know, this is not a... Um, you know, God wasn't in an angry phase. This is this is actually how He approaches the universe, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. What that looks like in a minute. Um, so, if someone can read for me the entire chapter of Revelation, chapter nineteen, I think it is twenty verses, twenty-one verses. Okay, go ahead, nice and loud. After these things, I heard something like the wild voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, "Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, because His judgments are true and righteous." For he has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sits on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne, saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, and like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad, and give the glory to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. He said to me, These are true words of God. Then I fell on his feet to worship him, but he said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Yeshua. Worship God, for the testimony of Yeshua is the spirit of prophecy. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. 
And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, and small and great. And I saw the beast, and the kings of the earth, and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse, and against his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet, who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. And these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. When I was a small boy, probably five, six, um, without so much graphic information, my father would tell a story, the story about Yeshua, Jesus, coming back, riding a, on a horse. His hair is white, his eyes are fire, his sword is going to... I love that story. I wanted my dad to tell it all the time. Um, and and I think that I think that's kind of cool about that, is I feel like that's, um, that's the image we should be going for, right? I mean, that's, that's how it starts with the marriage of the Lamb. But who is the Lamb? He's the one with the fiery eyes, the sword coming out of his mouth. And rather than finding that like disturbing or, or terrifying, whatever, it's more like it's more like that's my God, you know? That's what He looks like. That's, that's what word. He does. That's I mean, He, it, lo he loves us. He's he loves us so much. So there's a relationship there, and it's like, and if you looked at the beginning, what Mr. Martin was reading, the very beginning of that passage, it said um, that He had avenged the blood of His bondservants on uh, on Babylon. And this idea of, we were talking about earlier, this kinsman redeemer, again, it's like there's this, there's this hero effect, you know? This is, he is coming to redeem us, to rescue us, and at the same time to judge the wicked. Um, I'm not the first person to point this out, but uh, one of the things I think is fascinating about this passage is there's two suppers, right? You've got the feast, the marriage feast of the lamb, and then there's the, uh, the supper of God. Supper. God. Well, that's, yeah, so some people call it the, the, the bird feast, right? Um, and, and really, I think that one of the things my, my wife came up with on, this, on, our, on our study that I thought was so good was asking, you know, check your invitation. Which one are you going to? You know, it's like this. Uh, it is RSVP, but everyone has a feast. Are you there feasting and feast? Right. It's like when you say we had grandmother over for dinner, you know, it's like it's all about the, where the, the placement of the emphasis is, right? So, uh, we have grandmother for dinner. Uh, it's kind of like you want to make sure you uh, clarify, are you for dinner or are you coming for dinner? You know. Um, but the pat, but but again, that that sense of love and almost romance that God has with His people, contrasted against um, the violence towards the enemies of God. On our behalf. On our behalf. Well, right. on our behalf, and also on His behalf. I think it's important to note. It's not. It is on our behalf. At the same time, He is just. I mean, that's Paul. Him. He's faithful and true. He's. There's nothing about Him that's incomplete. And so when He comes and He wages war. He does so um, perfectly. Uh, this, it's so funny how I've been, 
my wife and I wrote this, this study months ago, and I'll be reading through, like preparing for a class, and be like, you know what, we should react to that. I should, I should mention this passage. And I'll go a little further and be like, oh, I did mention that passage. <laughs> I see that I was thinking the same way then. Um, <laughs> that so, was a genius. That, um, glad to see at least it was consistent, right? Um, the libretto of this, uh, uh, in this particular um, Handel's Messiah. So of course we've been, we've been paralleling Handel's Messiah to the Messiah passages. These passages about the constellation of Israel is Messiah, right? Um, Handel's Messiah captures this um, power image as well about our about our Messiah. So if someone has the libretto open, um, we're reading stanzas or uh, yeah, 44, 40 through forty four. Um, most of it's taken from Psalm two, and a little bit from Revelation. I got it. Go ahead. Why do the nations so furiously rage together? And why do the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth rise up, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. Let us break their bonds asunder and cast away their yokes from us. He that dwelleth in heaven shall laugh them to scorn. The Lord shall have them in derision. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Hallelujah! For the Lord God omnipoteth reigneth. The kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah. And he shall reign forever and ever. King of kings and Lord of lords, hallelujah. Forever and ever, hallelujah, hallelujah. And um, he shall be. Probably the best part of the whole thing. In fact, hallelujah, <laughs> of course, of course awesome. isn't that where the king's yeah. legend holds stood? Yeah, that's right. I mean, which is unheard of that the king to stand. So it's like, what? Uh, this is so amazing. He's, he's by stood. Strong. And ever since then, so we Everyone stands because the king stood. We all stand. We all stand for the Hallelujah Chorus. And it, um, of course, modern modern times have uh, sometimes inappropriately misappropriated this uh, this beautiful verse. But yeah, the point a, is that commercial. Yeah, but Hallelujah is uh, praise Shem, praise God, and um, it's just what a beautiful cap to this section. Uh, it's the end of part two of the of the passage. It's so interesting because part two is about is really about. Um, Messiah suffering. Part two is about Messiah dying for us and resurrecting, and then it is at the end of that that we see this this recognition that He is also King, Amen. that He is coming to judge the nations. To your point, you've mentioned multiple times here, He rules them with a rod of iron. He's not. Um, this is not the teddy bear on the throne. This is a man who this is God. This is in, uh, who rules over us in, in such a uh, by force if necessary. And um, and Psalm two, uh, most of, we've quote, read quite a bit of it in that passage of the, from the Hail Messiah, but Psalm two, there's a little bit, a uh, couple other things just to throw out there. Um, depending on your translation, it kind of uh, changes how it reads at the end, which is uh, a little controversy there. But, um, but I'm going to read it anyway because I kind of like the way that it reads here. Um, so after the passage talking about you will break them with a rod of iron, Psalm t uh, two. Verses 10 through 12 says mm. this. Now therefore, kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the sun, that he be not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Um, so again, you see this idea that uh, they have responsibility towards... Whether you read it as do homage to the sun, there's another translation about uh, 
uh, cling to purity, I think is another, or something along those lines, because uh, the Hebrew is a little vague and confusing there. Um, the, uh, the point being that, in fact, um, the, uh, the point being there, either way, is the kings have responsibility to God. It's like, you better be ready, you better be prepared, because the king is coming. And when he comes, if you are not ready, you only can face judgment. But if you are ready, it says, how blessed are all who take refuge in him. And that is the, the, the contrast. That's the wedding. Um, Rabbi Jeremy Gimpel, I've, I've mentioned, if you've listened at all to our um, Torah portion discussions, you've probably heard me tell this before, but I really love this image. He was talking in his Joshua study about the, um, the Red Sea, the parting of the Red Sea. And the parting of the Red Sea, as we talked about earlier, has um, this deep relationship between God and his people moment there. It's, it's, a, it's, 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 a, it's a transcendent moment for his people. They see God in a way they have never seen it before, which is amazing because if you read through the, um, the Exodus story, it's like, I mean, we had 10 plagues and they pulled them out of slavery. And it's like, by this point, they hadn't realized who God was. I mean, you know, come on. And, uh, and yet in the, in the uh, Haggadah, the, the Passover um, book that we read, it specifically, there's this big back and forth between the rabbis of like, well, it says that his, he, with his outstretched arm, you know, his mighty hand, he, he invokes judgment on the Egyptians. Well, if each plague was the finger of God, then the, the parting of the Red Sea must have been like 10, because it's two hands worth of fingers, right? <coughs> 10 plagues. No, 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 it's more like 100 plagues, because it's just so dramatic. And, and so Rabbi Gimpel has this interesting teaching on, on, on why... The Red Sea is so huge. And one of the things he says is that um, they saw God's justice. They saw God judge the wicked. There's this idea that it, in Judaism they call it, um, I think it's... Uh, measure for measure. Ne measure for measure. I can't remember the Hebrew. It's something like naked, naked, but naked, something like that. But this idea of like the two verses versus one another. It's the balancing act, right? So what you do, you receive punishment in equal measure for that. Or reward, as it might be. But in the case of the Red Sea, they saw, like, in it, so the idea was like the Egyptian, you know, he broke this Israelite's arm, you know, abusing him as a slave, and so his arm is broken in the Red Sea. And so there's, like, perfect harmony between what people deserved and the judgment that God was pouring out. And in that moment, the people of Israel become filled with a spirit of prophecy to proclaim what is considered one of the, the greatest moments of prophecy in all of Scripture, the song of the Red Sea. So it's like in that moment, they saw God. And if you think about it, towards the end of the book, we get the same imagery. We get this picture in Zechariah of, uh, you know, they, they're going to see him, right? They're going to weep for him or whatever. But that's balanced against wrath and judgment. It's balanced against God uh, destroying his enemies. And Revelation, we get that same picture here. I mean, I think it's, it's you know, the verse says he lost them to derision. I love Revelation 19, that there's no battle scene. I mean, you know, it's kind of like if you uh, uh, you get to the end, it's like, and he's riding with the horse, and they, and they, the, the, the writer even decides to go ahead and throw in that the beast had gathered all of his armies as well, so somehow this is setting up for some, I mean, you're getting ready for, like, chapters, right? I mean, and then it's like, and the beast was captured by the lake of fire, and everybody else was killed with the sword that came out of his mouth, and it's like, oh, <laughs> okay. Because it's, it's not a question. Yeah, it's not Gettysburg. It's not, right, exactly right. And uh, single strike. But That's this it. this is our king. This is our master. You know, this Amen. is what he's going to do. And and, um, and it's like uh, in that moment, you're gonna we're gonna see him for who he truly is, and we're gonna get to and having just experienced that wedding feast with him, 
We're going to see that totality of him. Both sides of who he really is. And, um, and so in the, in the, as, as John, 1 John says, you know, uh, this idea that we will, um, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. So as we've, um, as we've journeyed through this study together, uh, we've covered a lot about Messiah. We've talked about, um, we've talked about John, who heralded Messiah. We started with the whole uh, prepare you the way, right? We talked about, which is only fitting for a king, right? Uh, right. So then we, uh, we, uh, we, we got into discussions about him. Uh, but now we talked about him as, as a husband, as, as master and king. Uh, previously, we've, we've covered uh, different elements of Messiah, different things that he does, um, uh, what's some examples? What's some things that you guys what stood out? This is our last lesson. It's overwhelming. I feel like we went through the entire yeah. Bible. We covered him as a suffering servant. Right. We did. And also as the contrast of light. Right? Imagery. The light imagery? Um, and talking about um, him as the light at the same time, us as the light, and him in us as the light, that kind of idea. So, so relationship, um, all as a son mm-hmm. at one point, and children, as a bride, right. the contrast between, you see, I guess, the relationship between Messiah in different forms. Right. In different points mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. prophecy. Understanding what it means that he is the Redeemer. Right. What that looks like. Right. He is actually the consolation. He is the consolation. You see the totality of what gets caught up in him? I mean... He, and he is the king. And he is the king, right, because he's everything. So we, we, start, we start with this idea... We, we, the first lesson was mostly about the herald of him, but he, so he recognizes his kingship. Then we talk about his sacrifice. We talk about his, uh, his love for his people, his relationship with his people, his consolation, his salvation of his people. We talk about his being the light to bring the nations in. We talk about him as the judge and at the same time the husband. It's like he covers everything. He covers all that we need and all that we want. Um, and I think it's so beautiful as we read these passages that is the consolation of, he is the consolation of Israel at the same time. It's about bringing in the nations. It's about expanding that group. It's about going into the highways and byways and, you know, uh, God be praised. He grabbed people like me who definitely did not deserve to get an invitation to the wedding feast um, and called us in anyway. And and so it's like he is, uh, this is the word that keeps my mind, it's the totality. He is he is everything. And um, and it's so neat to see all these different facets. And it's amazing. As I was preparing these lessons and, and going through some things, it's like you keep coming back almost like to the same, some of the same scripture preferences. Um, because they're all so intertwined, you know, you, you, it's like you, you, I think you, I read parts of Revelation 19 in at least two or three different lessons, because it's just such a beautiful summary of, of what he is, but it's because all those pieces come together. You know, it's like Josiah mentioned from the Song of Glory, all those pieces come together. God is, he is all of this. He is a unity containing all of the images and the pictures that we've studied. I, 
to borrow a phrase from our Christian brethren, I think this is perfectly time to say he is the reason for the season. <laughs> <laughs> because this is the season, according to Judaism, when That's we right. read these passages. That's right. Leading up to Rosh Hashanah. That's right? right. And I think you've done something very unique. I personally haven't read through a lot of Jewish commentary or anything around this season that focuses so heavily on Messiah. It's very much about consolation and whatnot, but it's just, it's always described as just God. There's, there really, Messiah is almost deliberately absent in, mm. in around this time in a very interesting way. Uh, but yet, we're, we're always quoting the kings in the field. The kings, you know, like, who is the king? Right. You know, it's like, and so I, I really appreciate so much, like, being able to, to sort of pull back the, the curtain and unveil, like, yes, of course it's God, but. How is he going to do all that? Right. He's doing it through his son, through Messiah Yeshua. And right. I, I feel like we've, we've seen it quite clearly through this study, and it was really amazing. Yeah, the agent, right? Yeah. So he, and you're right, the holidays, these are so perfectly timed. We're not saying Rosh Hashanah is about kingship. Rosh Hashanah is about judgment. It's about both. We just got that in the passages we've been reading, right? Yeah. Um, at the same time, then Yom Kippur is about forgiveness, and, that, and, and ultimately recognize that um, as the ultimate lamb, you know, our forgiveness is, is, is for eternal forgiveness is tied up in, in Yeshua um, and his death and resurrection. And then you get to Sukkot, and Sukkot is all about that. It's all about the being with him, being with him, yes. being with him rejoicing with him. But it's about the nations with him and his people with him all together. The nations come up and worship him at Sukkot, as it says in Zechariah. Um, and at the same time, it's also about that intimacy that the Jewish sages teach that the last stage, Shemini Yetzirah, is like an after party. It's only for the his people. You know, everybody else they can go home now, but his people he asked them to stay for one more day. Amen. And it's amazing to me that that last day is the Shabbat. So the last day, the eighth day, is a Shabbat, which is so fascinating because there's this principle of that that the the end of time is a Shabbat that never ends. The day is always Shabbat. Well, the sages say that you know, six days man will reign according to the six days of creation. And the seventh day is, is the days of Messiah. But it's the eighth day, it's the next day after Messiah reigns that we have the Olam Haba. And it's just Saturday on the red. And so as you get into these holidays, you know, I hope you think about things we've learned over the last few weeks and it's an opportunity to recognize Messiah's role in these passages and these right. holidays that we're going to be celebrating. Um, I love the fact that the Martins read uh, the birth story of Yeshua at Sukkot every year because probably about the right time for Yeshua being born. It would seem appropriate that he be born during Sukkot. It certainly lines up. Um, if you do, don't know why it lines up with actual scripture dating references, you can go back and find the Zadi class on that topic on iTunes and listen to it in its entirety. Um, it's very good. Um, and then, of course, yeah, like I said, we end, we end with Shemini Yetzir. We end with the eighth day. We end with that picture of the Olamba uh, forever and ever with Messiah, with God. And as we read, you know, that's that it's if there that is the ultimate intimacy. That is the that is the marriage that we've been building up to. The wedding feast is a celebration that kicks it all off, gets it all started. But the, the the end result is what comes after. You know, a lot of people talk about their wedding day as the happiest day of their life. I at some level I kinda hope that's not entirely true. Because <laughs> you kinda want like you know way all downhill from there, you know? It's like it's supposed to be that's supposed to just be the beginning of the happiest stage of your life. Yeah. And, um, and I hope that is the case for, for us in our lives today. But, but more importantly, we know that it will be that way with, with God at the end. Indeed. And uh, I really can't think of, I think my, 
my wife typed in the last the last thing she put into our text this, this week was hallelujah. I mean, I'm gonna get way to end there. Um, but any final comments from anybody? Well done. Well, thank you all. Exceptionally. Baruch Hashem. Thank you so very much for for spending time with us. I appreciate your your consistency. <laughs> so I do want to get. Um, we can turn that down just for a second. We can get some to uh, to close us out prayer. I get my father-in-law to close us out. That'd be great. Oh, while you're there. Good father, we're grateful. We're grateful for a Messiah who loves us enough to die for us and loves us enough to fight for us. We pray for your soon coming that we can sing hallelujah over and over. We pray for that day which is all day, Shabbat. For that rest that remains for the people of God, Father. We pray that you would find us faithful, that we would be properly clothed with those garments of righteousness and righteous deeds that we do in your name to your people and to the least of these. Father, we're grateful for Joshua. We pray you'll bless him and his wife for the time they took to study and put together this uh, uh, study for us. We're grateful for that. And we just pray, Father, that uh, uh, as we pray to sell a coat these seven days, that uh, you would prepare our hearts because you are near. And we, we look forward to standing before you because we are clothed properly, Father, in the righteousness of your Son. We're grateful for that. We pray these things in the name of Yeshua, Messiah, and our Lord. Amen. Amen. <laughs> 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 <laughs>